Yoga in Action proudly presents The Lost Ways of Knowing with Circle Yoga Shala's Matthew Kreps. Welcome, everyone. Let's make a short recap of the last episode. Last time we looked at a very influential figure, Swami Vivekananda, as being one of the keys in influencing yoga's emergence in the West and how we understand what it means. We noted some interesting things about Vivekananda's life. We saw that his political and spiritual leanings both show a strong influence from the forces that came with British colonialism to India. And you could see that, for instance, in what would really be Greek notions of rationality and how important rationality is a central organizer of information in determining what is real. Vivekananda very much appreciated this and was educated in a, a system that exalted this kind of rationality. So it got associated right strongly with what, what yoga is and, and even more than that, what real yoga is. And then we also saw that through his association with the Brahmo Samaj that he shows an influence from more universalist interpretations of the Christian doctrine. So Vivekananda left us a legacy really of polarization, really kind of like a value system that distinguishes between kinds of yoga that are oriented more toward his definition of Raja Yoga, remember, which is the superior, scientific, rational, rationally dominant yoga, and then those systems that are oriented more toward the gross physical, in which case we're talking about the Hatha Yogins. And remember that Vivekananda described them as having inferior spiritual goals, specifically in relation to the value that they gave to the physical body. I think we still see these kinds of value systems, the judgments between more meditatively or contemplative-oriented things and what are supposed to be more gross physical things. I still think we see that value system at work in our culture. Um, for instance, when we see, quote, gym yoga being disparaged as unspiritual, or we hear slogans in the media like, quote, unquote, it's not about the asana. Though there's still some, some of this at work, I think, in our culture. And it's important to see that and know that, remember, one of the scholars we mentioned said that prior to modern times, there was always a physical element to systems of yoga and, and that the distinctions between the physical and the meditative and so on may not have been nearly as strong you know, as they are today. This episode... We're moving a little further toward modern yoga, uh, more toward our time in history, to talk about a key figure, another major influence in what came down to us and what we're practicing. This man is often called the father of modern yoga, and his name is Tarumalai Krishnamacharya. We want to talk a little bit, a very tiny bit, about Krishnamacharya's life and his influence and the the specific time period that he worked in Mysore in particular. But before we do that, to call him the father of modern yoga, we need to more clearly identify the yoga that we are now talking about, that we have come forward into the early 
or late 19th century. Let me give you a quote from James Mallison, whose book, The Roots of Yoga, is a really excellent source for much of this material. Quote, The yoga whose roots we are identifying is that which prevailed in India on the eve of colonialism, i.e., the late 18th century, although certainly not without its variations and exceptions, by this time there is a pervasive transsectarian consensus throughout India as to what constitutes yoga in practice. One of the reasons for this is the rise to predominance of the techniques of Hatha yoga, which held a virtual hegemony across a wide range of religious traditions, including the Brahmanical traditions in the pre-colonial period. So when we, when we talk about modern yoga, we are in the late 18th century, early 19th century, and notice that by this time there is a, quote, pervasive transsectarian consensus. And so there's a sense in the society about what yoga is, what constitutes it, and how it's practiced, and so on, in relation to what everyone is doing. Well, that is a, is a, a thing that had stabilized at this time, and it is the, the nearest ancestor, for sure, of what it is that we're doing. Notice also that in spite of Vivekananda's suspicions of those quote-unquote physical dominated systems, what we see, one of the reasons for this transsectarian consensus is the rise to predominance of the techniques of Hatha Yoga. And so Hatha continued to exert an influence and at least something of it became part of this transsectarian consensus that was done uh, across a wide swath of people. Robert Singleton goes on to say that really what is most striking about the kind of transnational Hatha yoga that, that we really got and do is the degree to which it departs from the model outlined in the original text. The most prominent departure really is the primacy accorded to asana as a system of health, fitness, and well-being, and the relegation or elimination of other key aspects such as shatkarmani, mudra, and even pranayama, though maybe to a lesser extent. Well, Singleton singles out this unique focus on the physicality of modern yoga, not just that there is a physical aspect of it, but that, that the physical aspect of what had been called hatha is now placed in the context of fitness and well-being, and we don't, and therefore certain techniques come to us that, that didn't necessarily make it. Otherwise, we don't see, for instance, shatkarmani, that's what's mentioned here. Those are the purification practices that we talked about in season three in the episode on in the episodes on Siddha based techniques. Deep purification techniques, those don't tend to come. Mudra is less uh, prominent, although there are definitely some schools and people who see its importance. What we see in transnational modern Hatha Yoga, therefore, is a great primacy accorded to asana as a system of health, fitness, and well-being. Asana has many other deep, profound purposes, 
in addition to the effects it has on fitness and well-being. But that's kind of the way that, that this came to us. Singleton goes on to say in relation to asana and its being geared toward fitness and well-being, quote, while it's going too far to say that modern postural yoga has no relationship to asana practice within the Indian tradition, this relationship is one of radical innovation and experimentation. It is the result of adaptation to new discourses of the body that resulted from India's encounter with modernity. That's Robert Singleton from his book, Yoga Body, The History of Modern Posture Practice. So he says that it would we'd be going too far to say modern yoga has no relationship to the asana practices within the Indian tradition. And I think that's true. The siddha-based practices do exhibit postures and done somewhat in the way, right, that we would uh, do them now, depending on which, which style you're doing. But we don't see those postures having the same goals. I think that's the main thing that's being pointed out here. Number two, this focus of postural yoga in the area of fitness and well-being is a result of an attitude of radical innovation and experimentation, something going around in the air at the time in the, in, in the late 18th, early 19th centuries. This radical space of experimentation is centered around the body, of course, and I think that means that we should pause here for just a second and go back throughout the series to remind ourselves that this discourse of experimentation and change that's centered around the value or non-value of the body is something that we have spoken of continuously, right, since we began even to talk about the Vedic sacrifice. And so this evolving body discourse, we could start with the Upanishad, for instance, and remember in the Upanishad, the body became the oblation. The body became the liquid that is poured into the fire in that moment of tiaga where something is lost for good. It's the body that becomes the seat of the sacrifice and the body still has the characteristic there in some sense as soma, the the liquid piece, because it's the oblation. This rise in status, remember, produced medical advancements and also mystical uh, meditation in a certain way that was centered in a sense around the body itself because it's the seat of the sacrifice. If if we say, well, what, what about the Buddha? Remember that for the Buddha, the body is simply a phenomenon composed of what he called the five heaps. It is impermanent and it is devoid of any separate self-sense. And so the body itself is not given particular prominence. In the Buddha, he takes a distant, in a certain way, attitude towards it. Doesn't say that it's not necessary, doesn't judge it, but says it's best not to be, this have be the area where uh, attention is focused in, in the way that it is in Hatha Yoga, for instance. If we come forward to Patanjali, it's very simple. If you read him as a strict Sankhyan, the body exists as a result of misidentification because I am misidentified 
the whole world exists, and so the body exists also. This body that I know to be the locus of myself is not the locus of myself for potentially. When we come to Siddha practice, we're still dealing strongly with a set of techniques that center around physicality in a certain way. And remember that for the Hatha yogis and the Siddhas, they're doing the the yoga of the pot, the kumbha. And so the body is the vessel that is to be transformed and transmuted into something that will defy death. A very exalted uh, view with extremely austere and imaginative practices designed to, to meet those ends. If we make our way to Vivekananda, remember that he criticized the Hatha yogis as having techniques that only concern themselves with the body living a long time and that that's an inferior uh, spiritual goal for someone who is a serious aspirant because impermanence is too real, body identification has other problems that come with it, and so on and so forth. You can see that modern practice inherits some of this stuff in the sense that the body is given prominence. Now, giving it prominence, giving asana and the body prominence in the, in the area of health and fitness is not exactly saying that it's the seat of the sacrifice, like the Upanishad said. Uh, not exactly saying that it is like clothing that will be shed life after life and it does not touch the self in any significant way, like the Gita said. It's not exactly the same thing, but there's a tradition of being allowed to exalt the body and put it in a place that is is very important. We, we inherit that, in a sense, and now asana, primarily, according to Singleton, is looked at it in terms of health and fitness, a component of a, of a larger routine in some way that aims at those ends. Now, knowing that the discourse on the body has been something that's been prevalent throughout the whole time, we can land ourselves in India at the time that modern practice as we know it is really being put together by people like Krishnamacharya. It's important to understand that from the late 19th century to the 1930s, for instance, a, a huge surge of interest in physical culture swept over most of Europe. And this this sense that the body was something very important. We need to take care of it. We need to stay in shape. We need to maximize our health for, for higher ends and so on. This happened in Europe in the late 19th century in the 1930s. Now, that's important because it made its way, that same surge of interest made its way to India via the British occupation. Now, the British are very different people than the Indian people, different in stature and size and, and many, many ways. And so the Brits brought an enthusiasm for a certain body type that probably should be labeled as Greek in a, in a certain way, where the Olympics started and where the games happened all the time and, and the, where the perfectly proportioned you know, human form is repeated and shown in sculpture you know, in many variations. 
So the Brits brought this enthusiasm for physical culture with a certain body type in mind. And that prejudice toward a certain body type as being the one that's beautiful and the one that's valuable in combination with their position as rulers generated something that Singleton says is a very common stereotype of the Indian male as effeminate. And so you have these big hulking British guys and they, they think they're thinking of Hercules and they're so on and so forth. And this is the ideal body type. And then they come to the country and, you know, they rule the country and of course they go, well, gosh, these people are not like that. And so, you know, they're, they're effeminate. Well, that stereotype has made its way into the culture in certain ways. And, and according to Singleton began to affect the, the, especially male psyche, right, of India. Here's something that Singleton says about this time. The swell of Indian physical culture was to some extent nationally motivated and highly organized campaigns of militant physical resistance to colonial rule were commonly run out of gymnasiums and physical culture clubs. And so the Indian population, a certain portion of the Indian population, bought into the physical culture movement and uh, also, in some sense, bought into the the body type and physical ide- physical culture ideas that I said were Greek in origin. They bought into these things because gymnasiums began to pop up and they became very popular and physical culture clubs based around certain activities, certain kinds of gymnastics or certain or wrestling or other things began to pop up. And that that interest that the Indians are now showing in physical culture is a form of resistance, right, to colonial rule. And so it is the case, Singleton really shows this in a fascinating way, that the gymnasiums were places where resistance was centered and that sometimes gymnasiums were raided and people were arrested there and, and things like that. And so this mixture of of physical fervor and political <clears throat> resistance is important to see as a sort of the germinating ground for a lot of modern yoga as we know it. Now, with the British came several form, several highly developed physical system forms, many of which were calisthenics, uh, body weight oriented, in other words, many of which were uh, gymnastics oriented. And there were several kinds of gymnastics that were very, very, very important. There were also experimental systems of physical fitness that had been created by Europeans that came, uh, Ling, L-I-N-G is a form of gymnastics that had come with them. There was a very famous strongman whose last name is Sandow, who, whose system made it to India in, that, in this fervor. Uh, the YMCA also came to India and had a major influence, evidently, in the culture. And all of this led to a creation or revival of the idea that India itself had indigenous forms of exercise that were distinct from, though often borrowing from, also these imported systems. And so, again, just pointing out the mixture of many, many influences, now we see that in response to the sophisticated physical systems that came, that the Indian population began to search for something from its own identity, something that was indigenous and unique 
to India that was on par and possibly even better. But Singleton documents that those systems that they claimed were indigenous often includes British influence. And I think that perfectly describes what we are doing today, uh, a mixture of many of these things, plus indigenous things, right, from India. So remember, in this flurry of mixture and nationalism and colonialism, this search for identity, what was going on in the gyms started to be called yoga. Now, how does Krishnamacharya fit into all this? Well, I'm going to give a, a cliff note version of his life. There are many books out there written about him. Many, I say there's probably four or five, many written by his uh, family, some by his students. And I think that if we were strict about our scholarship, most of that stuff would be called hagiography. And that means put together by devotees of a certain person in order to present that person's life and especially make it appear a certain way. Um, there is some historical controversy about the things that are claimed about Krishnamacharya's life. According to David Gordon White, uh, that's too much to go into uh, specifically, it doesn't really impact whether he's the father of modern yoga or not. And so I'm going to give the standard story, which may or may not be hagiography, but these are the bullet points of of who this person was and how he sort of came to be the one that we're talking about in a certain way. So his initiation into philosophical yoga began at age five when his father started to teach him aphorisms from the Yoga Sutra. It was during this early time uh, in his life that he was told by his father that he was directly descended from one of the great yogis named Nathamuni, founder of the Vaishnava school, from which Krishnamacharya eventually graduated. And so he is evidently, he's, a Brahmin, he's born into the Brahmin class and he is directly descended from one of the great yogis in the Vaishnava lineage. At 16, the young Krishmacharya traveled to Nathamuni's birthplace and was said to have fallen into a swoon, during which he received the full teaching of a lost text called the Yoga Rahasya. In 1906, he embarked on a traditional course of study with teachers from Mysore, Varanasi, and other great centers of Hindu learning. He distinguished himself in Vedic studies, Nyaya, and Vedanta. And so we have, uh, number one, the receiving of a text in a swoon called the Yoga Rahasya, and I believe you can get his offering or his translation of what it is that he said that he received and then after this time at 16, we see that he embarks on a traditional course of study and he distinguishes himself in, in uh, a vast array, I learned, uh, of areas. So he was evidently very hungry for learning naturally by disposition. And so after he finished his education in places like Varanasi, he landed in Tibet under the wing of a cave-dwelling master named Yogeshvara Ramamohana Brahmacharya. 
And the story is, is that he studied Ayurveda and Hatha Yoga with the master and his family for seven years. And at the end of that seven years, at some point or other, Yogeshwar Ramamohana Brahmacharya said, it's time for you to go. And the story we learned is, is that, that the yogi said, the time for the yogi in the cave is over. You need to go down into the world and take your learning and be of assistance and keep yoga alive and so on and so forth. And so after he left Tibet, I think he worked for a time as a coffee farmer or worked on a coffee plantation, I think I read at some point, and had a sort of regular life as a Brahmin and um, eventually married and, you know, did the, the normal thing. And he eventually landed a position in the Mysore Palace. I heard that this position came as a result of his use of Ayurvedic remedies to help some of the royalty there with something like type 2 diabetes. Someone got, got a lot better and they, the person who was helped realized that this was a person of great learning and, and obviously had talents. And so Krishnamacharya was hired to work at the Mysore Palace and he taught there for 17 years. So it was here at the Mysore Palace that he elaborated his renowned series of asana and pranayama, generally called Ashtanga Vinyasa Yoga. And he taught this to several very important students, namely BKS Iyengar, who is the founder of Iyengar Yoga, and K. Patabi Joyce, who went on to teach Ashtanga Vinyasa Yoga. These two especially went on to travel in Europe and America and to teach those styles. And inside both of those styles, this alignment-heavy, deeply precise Iyengar form of practice that's that's generally dominant in stillness and this flowing, very vigorous, amazing series that Patabi Joyce brought, of which there are supposed to be five, I think, of increasing difficulty. Those styles are the, the seeds of most of the modern forms of posture practice that, that you see today. Now, Krishnamacharya taught other important people. Indra Devi is often called the first lady of yoga. A.G. Mohan, who is still alive. Srivatsa Ramaswamy. Uh, T.K.V. Desikachar, his son. So it goes on and on. Those people taught many of the, of the people that, that we, who are my age, ended up studying, especially if, when we began to think about how the techniques need to be adapted to specific individuals, because that's a hallmark of the Krishnamacharya tradition, this, this, this tendency to adapt the yoga to the individual and not the other way around. So eventually the school at Mysore was closed. And at that point, Krishnamacharya moved to a place called Chennai, where he had been offered a position at the Vivekananda College. And his early career in Mysore, where he was teaching many of those young boys like Iyengar and, and Patabi Joyce at that time, that particular time in his career is, is an expression of this, this radical discourse around the body in the role of health and fitness. He was a, a part of this in a certain way. 
I want to go much more deeply into that, but let me just say that after he left my story, his, his teaching continued to evolve. He is he he went on to basically teach a system of therapy and adaptation that that is very sophisticated and now deeply intertwined with the Yoga Sutra and chanting of the Yoga Sutra in certain postures. Very sophisticated pranayamas. It's, it's the basis of most of, of what we do here at the Shala when it comes to therapy. So we want to focus, because we're talking about modern yoga writ large and this physical culture movement, we want to focus a little bit more on this time at the Mysore Palace and what it was like, this time of radical experimentation and new dialogue around the body. And so to do that, we have to talk about the Maharaja, Krishna Raja Wadiyar IV, who is the royal personage in Mysore at this time when Krishmacharya is at the palace. Here's something that Krishna Raja Wadiyar IV said to give you an idea a little bit about what he was like. For our own sakes, for the sake of the world in general, and for the sake of the youth of Mysore in particular, I wish you all possible success in your endeavors to give direction to a civilization that has lost its way, and I suggest that the signposts are to be found in the simple truths that lie at the base of all religions and their application by the aid of the great discoveries of science to the needs of the present day. Well, this is part of his opening address to the 1937 YMCA World Conference, and it's quoted from Robert Singleton's book. Notice here the spirit of the kind of rationality and trust in science that Vivekananda displayed when he spoke in the West. The Maharaja of Mysore is very much a well-educated modern man like Vivekananda and knew the benefits and values of science. Notice specifically what he says about how we are to give direction to this civilization. This would be his own that he's talking about that has lost its way, not only India, but probably speaking of the world and many of its troubles also. He suggests that the signposts that are the answers to this problem lie at the base of all religions and their application. And so the deepest part of it is a religious problem and those religions need to be applied by the aid of the great discoveries of science. And so the mixing of the cultures is well underway, and we can see that here the people at the top, in this case the Maharaja of Mysore, very much interested in these influences, right, that have come from the West. Mysore at that time was considered a kind of pan-Indian hub of physical culture revivalism. And so in Mysore in particular, the gymnasium movement was strong. And the Maharaja was a patron, actually, to one of the gyms that we'll be talking about. And so he was a patron, not only, therefore, to Krishnamacharya and this project of yoga that was going on, 
He was also a patron to one of the most important fitness celebrities in India at the time. This man's name is K.V. Ayer, and he lived from 1897 to 1980. Pretty good long life. Maybe his methods were good. He was a bodybuilder. If you Google K.V. Ayer, you'll be able to find pictures of him uh, posing in the way that modern bodybuilders do. So Ayer was the most recognized fitness celebrity in India in the first half of the 20th century. Here's what Singleton says. Although most exclusively remembered as a bodybuilder, Ayer was an avid promoter of hatha yogic exercise as part of a larger, highly aestheticized physical regime based on Western models. And so he had his own system, and he called the, the practices of hatha yoga, which were a part of that system, the Indian specialty. His system was, according to Singleton, quote, a self-conscious marriage of bodybuilding and yoga, which he called, again, the Indian specialty. Its aim was the creation of something that Ayer conceived of as, quote, the ideal man. What's that like, you might ask? Someone who has the symmetry and strength of a Sandow, and so he's admiring this British strongman that I mentioned just earlier, but also, not just that, someone who has the immunity to disease afforded by Hatha Yoga. So, we'll lift weights and do calisthenics for our muscles, but we need to have this Banda Pranayama mudra-based thing in order to, to quote-unquote, work out our immune system so that we have a particular kind of resilience. So you can see the mixture, right, that's going on at this time. This is kind of the flavor of what's happening. Now, Krishnamacharya was part of the mix at the Mysore Palace and in Mysore on the scene at the time. Because he taught at the palace, he was an important figure in the community. And <clears throat> what he was technically entrusted with at the palace was popularizing the practice of yoga. And the system he developed to fulfill this mandate really is the origin of much of today's asana-based practice. Singleton says this, Krishnamacharya's system is a synthesis of several extant methods of physical training that, prior to this period, would have fallen well outside any definition, any definition of yoga at the time. And so that's an interesting thing to note that what Ayer was doing probably wouldn't have been called yoga writ large, but also the yoga that the yogi was teaching was composed of several things. It was being called yoga, but the things it was made out of, like certain extant methods of physical training prior to that period, those would not have been called yoga. Now, it's fascinating to go a little further here and to know that it is said that Krishnamacharya and Ayer, K.V. Ayer, knew one another. And we know they both shared the patronage of the Maharaj of Mysore. If I didn't say it earlier, the Maharaj was 
one of the sponsors of Ayer's gym, which was just down the street from the palace where Krishnamacharya taught his asana classes. And evidently they both had, you know, competed for the hot times in certain ways who would go where, when, because people were interested in both things. Now, here's what Singleton says about their relationship. Quote, K.V. Ayer's son, K.V. Karna, in fact stated to me that Ayer and Krishnamacharya would occasionally meet and that Ayer, as a nationally admired physical culture celebrity and favorite of the Maharaja, would offer the yoga teacher advice on his classes at the palace. That's quoted from Singleton's book. And so, evidently, the two masters traded ideas about how to develop people and how to put things, certain things together depending on what the goals were and to talk about what was important and to just basically share knowledge. They shared the same patron, and so it's very probable here, well, according to Ayer's son, they, they knew one another, but it would, it would make sense that they would be friendly to one another because they had the same patron. So by the time Krishnamacharya had taken the position of yoga teacher at the palace, the palace housed exercise rooms fitted with gymnastic-type equipment. His classes are identified in palace records as physical culture or exercise, and those classes competed with the bodybuilding classes offered at a modern gymnasium, just a stone's throw away from the palace. So there's a, a kind of summation. So we can see that what we got originated in part indigenous Indian uh, practices and philosophies and part European ideas about physical culture and its place in an overall system of values uh, that include health and fitness, but also spiritual values, because you know the YMCA is the Young Men's Christian Association, so it wasn't just they were trying to get everybody into shape. They had this idea that body and mind and spirit all need to be equally cared for and cultivated in order for something like optimal functioning. And, and that sounds very familiar, even in yoga circles today. And so we have East and West mixed together around really sophisticated physical techniques and philosophies. We have political resistance focusing around physical culture in the gymnasiums, we have Krishnamacharya being hired to be a spokesperson for yoga and to revive it in the culture. But we see that his classes at the at the palace are listed as exercise and so on and so forth. The Maharajas is the benefactor you know, of all this and is very much on board with the YMCA. And so we have a mongrel, still amazing system that has, depending on where you study it, acquired really, really deep physical sophistication in how practices are put together and proportions of movement and stillness and whether alignment is taught or whether it's not and how much activity and how much passivity. It's really evolved into an amazing thing in the hands of someone who's very experienced. We have to be careful about identifying it what we're doing is ancient, for instance, or, or anything else like that, but to think very carefully about 
the mixture of these things, the influence of the British, and so on. And also think very carefully about what our context is when we're applying these techniques or we're practicing these things and what our goals are in relation to those. Remember, I've spoken about yoga in general up to this point as being essentially about enlightenment or awakening. Now we see that what is being called yoga in the modern world is, is just a part of a fitness uh, uh, well-being routine, which I'm not down on, I'm not dogging. But notice the change, the ch subtle change in context that's come, because I think it's important not to forget this awakening piece. Now, like I said, Krishmacharya taught and, and developed a, a, this sophisticated system that was just described for 17 years before he went on to Chennai and he continued to evolve and he continued to to break new ground as far as I can see. Though after Krishmacharya left Mysore in the early 1950s, his methods continued to evolve and he continued to adapt right to different circumstances and different kinds of people. And this notion of adapt adapting the yoga to the individual becomes a central part of what we learned was Vini yoga, V-I-N-I -I yoga. I don't know if it's still called that anymore. There may be, you know, copyright disputes or trademark disputes that have happened, you know, since this time. But Vini yoga is a term that comes from the third chapter in the Yoga Sutra, and it means yoga adapted to the individual. And I think that's extremely important, this sophistication originates and emerges from this period of experimentation that Krishnamacharya in part is responsible for. It, it's telling that his teaching changed over time, that he continued to adapt. And you can see this in the style of his later disciples in Chennai, such as his son T.K.V. Desikachar and senior student A.G. Mohan. It bears little resemblance to the arduous aerobic kinds of sequences that were taught by Patabi Joyce. And Patabi Joyce always said, I just teach, you know, what my guru taught me. And so he felt that he was carrying on the essence of what he saw. But Krishnamacharya tended to continue a pattern of growth and integration and, and I would say sophistication throughout his life. And that that legacy is definitely what we identify with here at the Shala, this, this notion of adaptation as being the essence of what it is that a yoga teacher will be involved in. Now, I wanted to read you something that I read, and this is from Singleton's book, Yoga Body. And it really touched me when I read it, and I want this also to be considered uh, part of Krishnamacharya's legacy and a comment on yoga as finding an appropriate adaptation relative to a context that needs to be respected and an individual right, that's in that context. So it said that Krishnamacharya was asked by a reporter about other countries and the fact that, that they're not from India and therefore is the, are the systems of things that they do, does that count as yoga or do you have to be from India to do it or you know, something like that? And here's his response to that question. Quote, you should know that God has created an appropriate system of educational activity for the geographical condition, the quality of the air, and the vegetation of the country. It is not true that the physical exercises practiced by such people are not in conformity with our yoga system. We don't know what they were practicing in the past, but at present, 
all of you should know for sure that they are practicing the same yoga sadhana as us. And so here we see that he's a Vaishnavite, God, has created an appropriate system of educational activity for the geographical condition, the quality of the air, the vegetation of the country, and so on. So people who are oriented toward understanding practice in relation to those contexts, all of that counts as far as the master speaking here says as yoga. And this notion is the notion that we carried forward from the from the influence of Krishnamacharya. And this is how we tend to approach things here. We're very interested in who people are, what their environment is like, what their relations are like, and so on. And we see if it's possible that the yoga can somehow fit the uniqueness of this situation. So let's make a summary. By the late 18th century, early 19th century, there is a transsectarian consensus about what constitutes yoga. And this consensus is reached in part because of the widespread implementation of the techniques of Hatha Yoga. So physicality steps to the fore, not for the same goals as the traditional Hatha Yogas, the Siddhas, but still stepping to the forefront. Now, modern practice, as we saw, has tended to emphasize the practice of asana over certain other techniques that were central to the Hatha tradition, like the purification practices, the Shatkarmani, the Mudra, and so on. This emphasis is also fueled by the influence of European systems of physical education and the revival of the physical culture movement in India that those European systems helped to spawn. And so that that fervor for physical fitness from Europe made its way to India and began to move in the culture and become mixed with everything that eventually became part of what we're doing also. Tarumalai Krishnamacharya, often called the father of modern yoga, is a key influence on modern styles of practice. His tenure at the Mysore Palace was a time of great experimentation with regard to the practice of yoga asana, and his vision at the time made its way to the rest through many famous students, BKS Iyengar, Patabi Joyce. His imperative that yoga is to be adapted to the individual and not the other way around, and that there is therefore an appropriate adaptation strategy relative to time, place, and culture, remains a guiding principle in people who identify with his lineage, and let me just say a key and central principle here at the Shala. In fact, we still call it Vini Yoga. So I hope this has been interesting and helpful in some way in kind of seeing the influences that, that are still being embodied in our culture today and the complex mixture of spirituality and world domination and so on that all plays into it. We really thank you for listening. God bless you. And we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening. To support our podcast, find Circle Yoga Shala's Patreon page and receive early access, study guides, live sessions with your podcast host, Matt, 
retreat discounts, and more. Circle Yoga Shala is a school for yoga, creative movement, and self-inquiry in Arkansas's Ozark Mountains. Offerings range from beginner yoga teacher training to an internationally accredited yoga therapy program, as well as Ayurvedic cooking courses for individuals and professionals like chefs, nutritionists, and life coaches. Additional retreats include equine inquiry, CEUs, yoga and recovery, and so much more. Subscribe to our quarterly publication, Yoga in Action, a comprehensive body of literature. To know more about our in-person offerings, visit circleyogashala.com.